Hello, this is Ted Davis in the Atlanta office of Kilpatrick Townsend in Stockton, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 90 of IP Fridays. Today's episode guest is Ted Davis, who has been on the show before, a long time ago, and is a regular guest at the inter meetings and presenting the US trademark case law there. So we are happy that he will tell us uh, what happened in the last 12 months in the field of trademarks in the US. Before we jump into this interview, I want to tell you some news that happened in the IP field. First, the European Patent Office um, just started a beta test for filing DOCX documents, so the documents that are generated, for example, by Microsoft Word, instead of PDFs, so the users won't have to convert their documents into PDF before uploading them to the European Patent Office. That will make life a lot easier. If you want to be part of that beta testing period, then you can register for your test and you will be able to upload DOCX documents instead of PDF documents. The UPC, the Unified Patent Court, tells us that they expect the court to start with closer to 20 contracting states that ratify the agreement. The only thing that is really delaying the current ratification process is the currently pending case before the German Federal Constitutional Court. And we do not really know how long that will take to be resolved. Another interesting piece of news that caught my attention is that the patent scope database, so the patent searching database of, the, of WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, now includes the full online file of the USPTO. So if you want to see office actions or any correspondence between the applicant and the patent office, you can see that within patent scope and you don't have to go to public pair, for example, at the USPTO anymore. That said, let's jump into the interview with Ted Davis. I'm very excited to be joined by Ted Davis today. If you don't know who Ted Davis is, Ted Davis is a long-term partner with Kilpatrick Townsend in Stockton in their beautiful Atlanta office. And he is a long-term trademark expert. He is not only an expert uh, by my opinion, but he has been listed in many rankings. Uh, for example, he has been listed in the World Trademark Review 1000 in the top 10 uh, trademark attorneys, or he has been listed uh, with Chambers as the top 25 practitioners in trademark law in the US. So he is a really a big shot, and I'm very happy that he is on the show. Thank you for being on the show, Ted. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. So, um, Ted, you are a regular guest to inter meetings, and not only a guest, but actually a speaker. Every year you actually deliver an overview of the case law and trademarks uh, together with a good friend of yours. And um, 
We, I just wanted to pick your brain what uh, happened in the last uh, 12 months or what are the most important developments in US trademark law in the past 12 months. So can you give us uh, like a brief overview? Absolutely. And we do have a very, very significant development uh, from the United States last 12 months. And that is the court's opinion in a case called Mattel v. Tam, the citation for which is 137 Supreme Court 1744. Tam is a case in which the Supreme Court for the first time since 1879 and only for the second time in the history of the United States has declared a federal intellectual property statute unconstitutional, in this case unconstitutional under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, which guarantees free speech. Um, The case arises under a provision of the Federal Anim Act uh, called Section 2A, uh, which is a provision that prohibits the registration of certain categories of trademarks, and one of them is a category consisting of marks that may disparage persons, living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols, or bring them into contempt or disrepute. The case came about because of an application filed by a musician who lives in Seattle and who has a band that consists entirely of individuals of Asian descent. And the band's name is the Slants, and the bass player of the band's name is Simon Tam, who is the named party in this case. And Mr. Tam applied to register the service mark, the Slants, for entertainment services. And the band's promotional material described the name of the band as a racial slur that the band members were trying to take back and turn into something positive. And again, all the members of the band uh, were of Asian descent. But the Patent and Trademark Office rejected the application to register the marks on the ground that it might disparage Asian Americans. Uh, Mr. Tam appealed this to the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, lost. He then appealed it to the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, where he lost on the issue of whether the mark was potentially disparaging. But nonetheless, he secured a holding from the Federal Circuit that the statute violated his right to free speech. The government then asked the Supreme Court to review that holding. The court agreed, and the, go- the court ultimately affirmed the lower federal appellate court's holding that the prohibition was unconstitutional. Now, this opinion produced a little bit unusually four separate opinions from the Supreme Court. And the interaction of these opinions is a little bit difficult to follow. But first, you had the opinion of the court itself. And this was an opinion joined by all eight justices who participated in the case. And then at a certain point, the justices diverge and you have a four justice opinion, which was not a majority. And you had a second four-justice opinion, not a majority opinion. And then you had also a solo opinion on a a very discreet topic that I won't be addressing. Um, The court's opinion itself was written by Justice Alito. uh, And then Justice Alito had authored as well one of the four-justice opinions. And Justice Kennedy authored the other four-justice opinion. Now, the court's opinion itself reached three basic holdings of trademark law that aren't particularly groundbreaking, but that are important in part because the court had never clarified these points in the past. And those three important points are, one, 
federal registration of a trademark is not a prerequisite for the use of that mark. Nothing surprising there, but again, it's nice to have that confirmation from the Supreme Court. Um, and also that unregistered marks that are still valid are eligible for protection against infringement under federal law. But at the same time, the owners of registered marks do enjoy numerous substantive and procedural advantages when they bring litigation to protect the marks. So again, three basic propositions of trademark law, not particularly uh, controversial, but it's good to have the Supreme Court confirm these things. And at that point, the two four justice opinions diverge in their holdings, but they ultimately reach the same outcome. And to understand what the outcome they reach, it's important to understand that under United States law, there are two ways in which it's into trouble under the guarantee to free speech found in our Constitution. First, the restricts the government action can be content discriminatory, and it also can be viewpoint discriminatory. Now, the distinction between the two is subtle but important. Content-based discrimination occurs when the government attempts to censor all speech about a certain topic, no matter what that speech says. But viewpoint discrimination is a subset of content-based discrimination and occurs when the government attempts to censor certain opinions about a topic, but only certain opinions. Content-based discrimination is disfavored under U.S. constitutional law, but it is possible sometimes to justify content-based discrimination. Viewpoint discrimination, on the other hand, is highly disfavored under con federal constitutional law, and it is almost impossible to justify government action that is viewpoint-based discrimination. And in this particular case, the two main opinions, by, and again, two four justice opinions, no majority on this particular point, but both opinions held that this provision was viewpoint discriminatory. And why is that? Well, one opinion concluded that the, the regulation or the statute was a happy talk registration, happy talk in quotation marks, and the other opinion concluded it was viewpoint discriminatory because it mandated positivity. In other words, you could speak favorably about a particular group, but you couldn't speak unfavorably about it. And as a consequence, both opinions in this case ultimately concluded that the statute was unconstitutional. Again, something generally rare in any context under United States law, but certainly in the intellectual property field, and, and again, the first time this has happened since 1879, and only the second time in the history of the country. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is it means a couple of things, the first of which is that a different case, one involving the registrability of the Washington Redskins marks, uh, this is the, these are the trademark, the service marks owned by the professional American football team in Washington, D.C., this opinion means that a challenge to the registrability of those marks as potentially disparaging of Native Americans has now been thrown out and is dead and gone. But for the most part, this holding is unlikely to have much of an effect on most of the other grounds for unregisterability set forth in the United States and the Federal Lanham Act. Why is that? 
Well, most of those other grounds are content discriminatory. For example, you cannot register a trademark that consists of descriptive material unless it is acquired distinctiveness. That is a content discriminatory prohibition on registration, but it is not a viewpoint-based prohibition. And for that reason, most of the grounds for unregisterability that are left in the Lanham Act are safe from a similar holding. There are, however, two that may be at risk and that are worth flagging. The first is a second provision, it's very similar but different, that bans the registration of material that is immoral or scandalous. And the constitutionality of that prohibition is currently being litigated before the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit involving a case to register a mark consisting of the letters F-U-C-T. You can guess how that mark is pronounced. Uh, and the application is to register it for various items of clothing. The way that case is going, I think it is more likely than not the Federal Circuit will invalidate that separate prohibition, again, the prohibition on the registration of immoral and scandalous marks as unconstitutional for the same reasons as the prohibition on the registration of potentially disparaging matter was invalidated in the Mattel v. Tam case. And then something that uh, an additional ground for unregisterability that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in this context uh, is you can block the registration of a mark if it is likely to dilute the distinctiveness of your prior used famous mark. And if, especially if it's likely to dilute the distinctiveness of the mark because it tarnishes your famous trademark. And so this is an additional ground for unregisterability that I think may fall afoul of the holding in this new Supreme Court opinion. Why? Because tarnishment also appears to be a viewpoint-based discriminatory regulation. And I think in the near future, we're going to see litigation questioning the constitutionality of that ground for unregistration, unregisterability as well. Now, the Mattel case was not the only significant First Amendment case to come out over the past year. There was an additional one from our Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The case is styled as Gerlich, G-E-R-L-I-C-H, v. Leith, L-E-A-T-H. Citation is 861 F. 3rd, 697. This is a case in which a state university denied a license to a student group who wanted to use the university's marks in connection with the group's advocacy of the legalization of marijuana. The university initially granted the license and then it withdrew the license under political pressure from the state capitol. The court in this case concluded that that action was a viewpoint discrimination, uh, viewpoint discriminatory action by the government. And as a consequence, it violated the constitutional right to free speech found in the First Amendment just as did the statute at issue in Mattel v. Tan. So what does this mean? Well, it means that if you are a state agency, a government agency, and you're in the licensing business, um, you do need to be careful about how you discriminate against potential licensees. If you're doing so on the basis of their advocacy of a political cause, you're probably running afoul of the First Amendment as well. Um, moving outside of constitutional law, a couple of significant, a very significant case from the federal circuit interpreting what it takes to have a use in commerce 
And by that, I mean a use in interstate commerce sufficient to create protectable common law rights in the United States. And that court addressed the question of whether a bona fide sale of two goods bearing a mark, but only two goods, to a consumer across state lines is sufficient to constitute use in interstate commerce. And the court concluded that the answer is yes, even this sort of modest sale constitutes use in interstate commerce. And for those of you unfamiliar with this portion of our Constitution, only if there is use of a mark in interstate commerce can the federal government regulate it. If there is no use in interstate commerce, then it's left up to the states. So how can a transaction consisting of only two goods constitute a genuine use in commerce? Well, the court in this case, and the citation of this case is 841F3-986, concluded that the question isn't really this transaction in and of itself, but this transaction in the aggregate. Uh, transactions like this one in the aggregate would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce and therefore falls within the scope of federal regulation and qualifies for protection under federal law. Now, moving on to a couple of other, a couple of other cases dealing with use in commerce, uh, we had a pair of opinions from our Trademark Trial and Appeal Board over the past year addressing the question of whether the lawful intrastate use, use within a single state of a mark for marijuana or goods related to marijuana, can that constitute use in commerce and in interstate commerce sufficient to create protectable trademark rights? The answer, according to the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, is no. Even if the use of a particular good is lawful under a particular state's law, it still remains unlawful under federal law to transport that good across state lines. And where you have that scenario, you can't have protectable federal trademark rights, which means no protectable federal registration. I'm moving on to a different topic, and but also a major one. Uh, courts differed over the, over the past year on the issue of whether a showing of willful misconduct is necessary if a prevailing plaintiff is attempting to recover an accounting of the defendant's profits. So in other words, if the plaintiff is trying to get the courts to, to order the defendant to disgorge its profits while using the infringing copy of the plaintiff's mark, does the plaintiff have to show that the infringement occurred in bad faith? And this is an issue on which our intermediate courts of appeals are split. It involves an interpretation of Section 35 of our Federal Lanham Act, which was amended back in 1999. And the question is, what significance do the amendments have? And some, some of our federal courts have concluded that the amendments of 1999 changed the then existing law so that willful misconduct is now a prerequisite for this remedy. But other courts have concluded that it is not and have continued to apply the traditional rule. Somewhat unusually in this, in this uh, particular context, the United States Supreme Court agreed to review this question. That in and of itself isn't unusual because that is what the Supreme Court should do. It should resolve conflicts among the lower courts. But after having agreed to review it, 
the court in a case uh, styled as Romag Fasteners v. Fossil Inc. then vacated the lower court's opinion and sent it back for reconsideration, citing the court, the Supreme Court's recent opinion in a patent case. And if you read the patent case, it has no apparent relationship to this particular issue, how you interpret the federal Lanham Act on the trademark side. And so in this particular case, when it went back down to the lower federal court, the lower federal court couldn't figure out what the Supreme Court had been talking about and simply came up with the same holding again. But here, the fact that the Supreme Court has granted review once on this particular issue and the fact that the split in the lower courts continues and continues to expand suggests that the court may well, the next time it's presented with the opportunity, take up the issue again and resolve it on the merits. Also, uh, coming from the Supreme Court, um, a few years ago, we had an opinion from the court interpreting the standard for awards of attorney's fees in patent cases. And awards of attorney's fees in patent cases are available only if the case is an exceptional one. That's how the statute reads. Well, in this particular scenario, and if you're seeking an award of fees under the Lanham Act for trademark infringement, you also have to prove, if you're the prevailing party, that the case is an exceptional one. And courts are increasingly holding that when the Supreme Court reinterpreted what it means to have an exceptional case on the patent side, that that holding has the same effect on interpretations of the identical language in trademark litigation. And so as a consequence, we have a scenario in which the standards for awards of attorney's fees in patent litigation on the one hand and trademark litigation on the other hand are converging. And we had several opinions last year reach that conclusion. Not all of our circuits have reached the same conclusion, but no circuit to address the issue has rejected that proposition. So what should you do if you are, have a case in a jurisdiction that has not yet addressed this question? Well, I think very clearly what you need to do is you need to brief the new standard that's coming in from the patent side. Even if your court hasn't yet adopted that, the odds are that it's going to at some time in the future. And then finally, I'd like to finish up with something of an unusual situation within our patent and trademark office, which is the office's treatment of surname marks, marks that consist primarily merely of surnames. Traditionally, it has been pretty easy to work around a prohibition against registration of those marks unless they have acquired a distinctiveness by simply tacking on another word. So the rationale is the Lanham Act prohibits the registration of primarily merely surnames unless they have acquired distinctiveness. But if you tack on any other word, your mark becomes all of a sudden it's not a surname, it's something else, and that prohibition doesn't apply. Uh, for reasons that aren't apparent, both the Patent and Trademark Office and the court that reviews it, the Federal Circuit, have dramatically moved away from that rule over the past year and have gone back to a rule that strongly disfavors applications to register surname marks, whether they are accompanied by additional language or not. Um, those are the highlights of the trailing 12 months in the United States, and I appreciate your patience. 
and I appreciate again the chance to speak with you today. Uh, thank you, Ted. Um, I have a question regarding the last point with the surnames. Um, uh, in in Europe, uh, we can just register trademarks for surnames, and but the legislature, the, the the case law in the U.S. would say that um, you couldn't register if, for example, Trump or Chrysler or uh, Levi's or so wouldn't be famous trademarks. They couldn't really register their trademarks. Uh, with the USPTO, is that correct? Yes, there is a statutory prohibition on the registration of surnames unless those surnames have become distinctive. So it's not a fatal ground for registration, but also it's the case historically you could work around that reasonably easily by just tacking on an additional word onto your surname. And That, that is the, the rule that the office and its reviewing court have very abruptly uh, moved away from um, over the past uh, 12 months, uh, 18 months. But certainly over the past 12 months, we've had some, some very interesting opinions reaching that outcome. But for example, if you wanted to be a new clothing designer and wanted to uh, enter the market with your name as a clothing line, then it would be difficult to uh, register the trademark, correct? That's, that's correct, especially if, it, if the mark is only your surname. Right, like Versace or something. Exactly. Gucci. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that, and that has always been the case. What, what has changed is Uh, one of the workarounds, again, just tacking on additional word. For example, Gucci clothing or something that worked in the past but will not work in the future. Yes, if, if, especially if the, the case law, the recent case law suggested that that's especially true if your additional word is descriptive or generic. Okay, just like in Versace clothing. Exactly. <laughs> For example. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ted. That was a really interesting um, summary of the case law in the last 12 months. And I'm sure that our listeners are very grateful for your um, summary. Um, if people have questions uh, regarding uh, these cases or just want to get a one-to-one -one, uh, view from you, uh, what would be the best way to reach you? Now, the best way is via email. And my address is tdavis. D-A-V-I-S at K-T-S-L-A-W dot com. Great. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting IPFridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at IPFridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at IPFridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to IPFridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program 
are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.